This morning we are concluding our sermon series in the letter of 2 Peter, and our attention will be directed to verses 11 through 18. But what I want to do is I want to begin in verse 1 to just remind us of the context of these words of Peter as he concludes them in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And now we come to the text that we will focus on this morning. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord, our salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction 
as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. We're grateful to have it, to hear it. And now, Lord, help us to obey it. Would you speak to our hearts, Lord, in ways only you can. God, though we hear the same words, help us to hear them in the context of our own lives and also collectively in the context of this local church. I pray that you would grant me grace to proclaim your word this morning, Lord. No one is sufficient for this task, so I pray for your help. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. But the first of the month, the first of this month in June, began the hurricane season, and it lasts, as many of you know, until the end of November. And the forecasters from Colorado State University have told us that we are going to have a slightly above average hurricane season. That's the forecast. They forecast 14 named storms, seven of which they forecast to develop into hurricanes, and three of which they forecast will be major hurricanes. In 2017, we had 17 named storms. Ten of them were hurricanes, and six of them were major hurricanes. And last year, the university's predictions were off. We had, they predicted not as an active a hurricane season, we had quite an active one. And only time will tell how these predictions for 2018 will turn out. But the truth is, we shouldn't really look at them so closely because you really just need one hurricane. Just one hurricane could bring untold devastation and damage, and so we need to prepare, and for the next... Uh, Six months, we need to live like those who really live in a hurricane zone. In his concluding words in Second Peter, the Apostle Peter shares a similar but far more important message concerning the day of judgment. What the forecasters from the University of Colorado have given us is a forecast. And based on the past it could be right or it could be wrong. But what the Apostle Peter directs our attention to in this letter, and in particular as he closes, is not a forecast, but the very word of God. Peter tells us that the day of judgment and destruction will come. That's what he says to us. It will come. Notice how he says that in verse 10. He says... But the day of the Lord will come. He says it will come. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. 
and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed or will be laid bare, that we see them for what they really are. Now, when you read the letter of Second Peter, you, you see that Peter could have concluded his letter right at verse 10. Because he has said all that he wanted to say. He's refuted the false teachers who said Christ is not going to return. He could have ended his letter in verse 10, but he didn't. Instead, what we see the Apostle Peter doing is he goes on to help us as the people of God to see how we ought to be living in light of these predictions about the Lord's return, the judgment of the world, and the destruction of all things as we know them. And in a nutshell, here's what the Apostle Peter is saying to us. He's saying that believers are called to live lives that reflect their belief in Christ's promised return and this world's coming destruction. Peter is saying to us, it's not enough for us to know what's going to happen. It's not enough for us to know that the false teachers were false when they denied that the Lord would return. He says, we need to live in light of that. The lives we live need to reflect our true belief in Christ's promised return and this world's coming destruction. And now remaining time this morning, I want us to consider three compelling exhortations that Peter gives us from these concluding verses in this letter. Where he tells us about Christ's promised return, he tells us about the world's coming destruction. First Peter says that those who belong to Christ and believe in his promised return and this world's coming destruction should live lives that are marked by, number one, holiness and godliness. Notice how he says that in verses 11 through 13. Let's read that again. He writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice that Peter's not asking a question. Peter's not asking us how we should live in light of the fact that this world is going to be dissolved, that everything is going to be exposed for what it really is. He's not asking a question. Instead, what he's doing is he's actually making a statement, and he's doing it with exclamation. You see the exclamation point after verse, verse 12. He's saying, in light of all of this, in light of the fact this is, this, this is going to happen, what sort of people are we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Peter is saying that somehow 
what we believe about these things has to be factored in in our lives and in how we live. Peter is saying that if we accept the promise of Christ's return, if we accept this prediction of the world's destruction, he says then, we should have these beliefs reflected in how we live. And notice, and he says in verse 12, he says, we are waiting for the promise of a new heaven, of new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there is this sense where Peter is saying, we live in this in-between. We live in this time-space world that he says is going to all be destroyed. And everything in it is going to be exposed and made naked for what it is because the world, in many ways, the things that we see in the world, they, they are camouflaged. We tend to make more of some things than we should and less of some things than we should. And Peter says on that day, things are going to be exposed for what they really are. But then he also says, we are waiting for this promise that God has given to us of a new heaven, of new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so those of us who belong to Christ, we live between these two realities, the reality of this world that is passing away and will one day be fully dissolved, and this new age that is to, that is to come with new heavens and with a new earth. Peter says we are to live with these realities in mind. And what he says is that because of these realities, our lives should be marked by holiness and our lives should be marked by godliness. Now when Peter talks about holiness here, he is not talking about holiness in the sense of what God declares over those who belong to him. He is not talking about the holiness of Jesus Christ that God credits to those who put their faith in him. He's not talking about that. When we come to Christ, we receive a righteous garment. We, the Lord declares us righteous. Paul says it this way in, in Romans 4. He says that, that God declares the ungodly righteous. That's a declaration. In and of ourselves, we are not. And no matter to what degree we attain righteousness, we will never be enough righteous for God. So God gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift. That's not what, Pe that's not what Peter is talking about here. He's not talking about that holiness. He is talking about a practical holiness. He's talking about the way that we live. And in a, in a very um, biblical sense, what it means to be holy is to be separate. That's the first most basic definition of holy. It means to be set apart from, to be separate from. And so when Peter is telling us that we are to be in this world living lives of holiness, what he's saying to us is that as it relates to the world, our lives are to be separate and distinct from this world, not participating in this world's practices, not, not participating in this world's values. He says we are to be living 
lives of holiness if we truly believe what the Word of God says about this world in which we live. We are to be separate from it, not participating in its sinful values, not participating in its sinful practices. Peter is saying to us, this world has an expiry date. It doesn't matter how much it seems like it is fixed and everything is so permanent. He says this world is an expiry date and it is destined for a fiery conclusion. And Peter says to us, don't be attached to it. Don't join in with it. Don't make much of it. In light of this world's future, we who belong to Christ must see this world for what it is. In John 17, Jesus was praying the, the, what is called the high priestly prayers. He was getting ready to go back to the Father, to ascend into heaven. And the prayer of Jesus gives us some insight about how we are to be living in this world, how we are to be relating to the world. Here's what Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, verses 14 through 16. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Notice what he says in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world, of its values and of its practices. We are called to live separate and apart from this world. In James chapter 4, the Apostle James is rebuking his audience because their lives look no different from the world around them. And in particular, in the area of quarreling and, and fighting among themselves. And here's what he says to them in James chapter 4, verse 4. He, he writes, You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's a very strong statement that Peter, that James makes. James calls the people of God adulterous. And the reason is that Scripture teaches us that the relationship between God and his people is like that of a, a husband and wife in marriage. And so when we are cozy with the world, when we are friends with the world, we are committing spiritual adultery because we belong to God. And James was telling them, he was saying, your sinful conduct is evidence that you are friends with the world. It's evidence that you're not staying true to your husband, the Lord. You are friends with the world and your behavior is showing it. You're fighting and quarreling, and you're no different from the way the world is. And so he makes the charge of adultery. And then he says that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And brothers and sisters, the point could not be clearer. When our lives are marked 
by holiness. We demonstrate that we are not friends of the world, but that we belong to God. Listen to these words from the Apostle John as he warns us about loving the world and commands us not to love it. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And notice what he says in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Every single day that goes by, this world is passing away. We come closer to that day when it will all be dissolved, when it will all have a fiery conclusion. And what we see, brothers and sisters, is it is impossible to love the world or anything of the world and live a life of holiness to which we have been called. John says it in very strong words. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. That is not what we say. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And so the truth is, we ought to be growing in our love for God and for the things of God. And our love for the world and the things of the world will diminish. And we need to understand that we need God's grace for this. We aren't able to muster up the spiritual strength or spiritual stamina to to do this. We need God's grace to cause us to love him more. And that's why, as I prayed for us this morning, as we sang, only you are holy. We have to pray, God, make me holy. God, would you... Cause the taste of the world to be bitter in my mouth. Cause me to see the world for what it really is. That is gold, that's fool's gold. It is is glitter, but it it is not true gold. We need God's grace to help us to do that. We cannot do it on our own. So Peter says our lives should be marked by holiness, pointing to how we relate to the world. But that's not all he says. He also says that our lives are to be marked by godliness. And this points to being shaped by love for God and a desire for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the same way that holiness speaks about how we relate to the world, godliness speaks about how we relate to God. And the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And I hope you see the connection between the two. When you see the world for what it is, I mean, kind of, come on, imagine. Imagine you hear that a company is failing. This company um, doesn't have a future. The business is going to dwindle. And people are trying to offer you shares in that company. You wouldn't be wise to buy it. 
Because that company is going to fail. That's this world that we live in. When we invest in this world, we are, we are investing in a company that is going to fail. And so holiness, how we're to be relating to that, compared to godliness in terms of how we're to be relating to God, and this new heavens, a new earth that God has promised will come. He has promised that he will, he will bring this new heaven and this new earth. And since Jesus is the revelation of God, the, the way that we know God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why when a person says, well, I want to know God. Well, God revealed himself in his son. He revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God's divine person. And so when we talk about godliness, another word we can use for that is Christ-likeness. We are called to a life of holiness and we are called to a life of godliness or a life of Christ-likeness. So Peter is essentially saying that our lives are to be marked by being more and more like Jesus Christ. And this speaks about obedience to the word of God. It speaks about living in accordance with the values of the kingdom of God that are expressed in the word of God. Brothers and sisters, these three verses demand our contemplation. Those of us who belong to Christ, these three verses that call us to live lives of holiness and godliness, these demand our contemplation. And what I ask us this morning to consider do these two words truly describe the lives that we live holiness godliness and the contemplation only begins here there's no way that we can do a faithful and a worthy job of contemplating and evaluating our lives as we sit here for this brief moment but we need to take these words seriously. And since we belong to Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we see these words where Peter says, come on, in light of this, in light of what is supposed to happen, in light of this world that is going to pass away, and in light of this new age that's going to come, how should we be living? How much should we be living lives that are marked by holiness and godliness. And so we need to think about this. We need to think about it beyond just sitting here for this brief moment. And there are many areas for us to consider, many aspects. Our lives are broad and varied. And we need to consider what, is, what does this look like in my life? Is my life marked by holiness and godliness? in particular areas. And I want to suggest five areas that I know are common to all of us that we should take some time and prayerfully consider. Is my life marked by holiness and godliness in these areas? There are others. This is not an exhaustive list. This is to get us started. And the first area is the area of speech. Our speech. The second is how we use our money. 
The third is our entertainment choices. The fourth is our relationships. And the fifth is how we dress. And we want to take the time to ask, you know, not limiting, not limiting the evaluation to these five areas, but certainly including these five areas. Is my speech, is my use of money, are my entertainment choices, how I handle relationships, how I dress and carry myself, are these reflective of this life of holiness and godliness that I'm called to? How different is my life in these areas from those who are unbelievers? Is my life more marked by holiness than worldliness? And then in the next area, in the area of godliness, I'll offer three areas for us to consider. And as I thought about this, it was very convenient to use the three areas coming out of the Habits of Grace, the book that we have been reading for our third discipleship class. And those of you who have done that would remember these uh, quite readily. God's Word, which is personal Bible reading and study, meditation, being faithful to times like this to sit under the preaching of God's Word. And the third is God's air, prayer, both personal and corporate. And then the third is God's body. How do we relate to brothers and sisters, church attendance, fellowship, serving in the context of the local church? These are three critical areas I believe that we can use to evaluate how are we doing in the area of godliness. Are our lives marked by Growing godliness as we consider these three areas of God's word, God's air, and God's body. And here's what I would say to us. If we are healthy in these areas, our lives will be marked by godliness. By growing godliness. Not perfection. Not perfection. But it is to be marked by growth in both godliness and in holiness. And the clear implication is wherever we are this morning, we all have room to grow. Every single one of us, wherever we find ourselves this morning, we have room to grow. And that is what we should be pursuing. We should be pursuing growth. We should be allowing the Spirit to convict us and, and being sensitive to that conviction and then seeking to change as he convicts us. And I think we should remember that the opposite of these two marks that the Apostle Peter holds out to us, holiness and godliness, will be unholiness and ungodliness. In our words, in our deeds, in our values. In verse 12, the Apostle Peter says that we have to be waiting and hastening the coming day 
of God. Now, I'm sure we all know what it means to wait. Generally speaking, when we're waiting, it's a good indication that we don't control the agenda, we don't control the schedule, we are subject to somebody else's. But what does it mean to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? And I think what Peter's doing is Peter's telling us two truths that we need to hold in tension. On the one hand, he is calling us to wait. Wait for the coming of the day of the Lord, a time that God ultimately controls. But then on the other hand, he is saying to us that by living lives of holiness and godliness, we can hasten the coming of the day of God. And so while God already knows and has set the day of the Lord's return and the end of this world and the ushering in of new heavens and a new earth. He has has done all of that. He has factored in our response and how we live into that timing as well. And so when we pray for the kingdom to come, when we share the gospel with people, when we disciple others, we are actually working towards bringing about the day of the return of the Lord. We are hastening it in a sense. When we are functioning as salt and light as we ought to, we are hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. So in a way that doesn't compromise the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, Peter is saying these two things. So he's saying, wait for the day. And then he also tells us, hasten the day. And this is a great example of Divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together. And so I think the point for us should be the lives we live matter. How we live our lives actually matter. God has so ordained it. Now, not only does Peter tell us that our lives would be marked by holiness and godliness, but he also tells us that our lives are to be marked with patience and diligence. And that's my second point. Three times in eight verses, Peter uses the word waiting. He does so in verse 12, he does so in verse 13, and he does so in verse 14. And then in verse 15, he tells us how we are to live in view of the seeming delay in the Lord's return, in this long period of time that has elapsed. The false teachers took the view, he's not come back yet, he's not coming at all. Peter says, no, don't, don't do that. He says, you need to be patient. He's saying to us, we are to, we are to wait. And notice what he says to us specifically in verse 15. He says, here's what you are to do with this delay. You are to count it as patience, the patience of the Lord as salvation. He says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count this delay in the Lord fulfilling his promise as an opportunity for salvation, as an opportunity to share the gospel, as an opportunity to reach the lost. That is the way we're supposed to view it. We're not to fall in the error of the false teachers. 
Remember what he told us earlier. He said, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So we should not focus on the length of time that has elapsed since Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven. We should recognize that we have gospel opportunities to help the lost to come to Christ. And Peter was not alone in what he was saying. He, he was in the company of Paul, and he points this out. Again, look at what he says in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you. So he's saying, what I'm telling you to do concerning the Lord's delay, Paul said the same thing. Paul says the very same thing. And then he goes on to tell us that some people who don't understand what Paul actually wrote, because what Paul wrote was somewhat difficult, he says what they are doing is they are twisting what Paul has written, they're twisting it to their own destruction. And obviously the point here, the point here in verse 16 is that these are individuals who are prideful. These are individuals who are proud and who have not submitted themselves to receive help in understanding these more difficult aspects of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And so they, they twisted what he said, and Peter tells us that they were doing it to their own destruction. I want you to notice, and this is more just in passing, that the way Peter relates to the words of Paul, he puts the words of Paul. We don't know the exact um, letters that he would have been referring to, but he says that they were twisting these words to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And essentially what he was doing was he was saying to us, the writings of Paul are Holy Scripture. That's important to see because um, oftentimes people would try to minimize the words of Paul or minimize the New Testament, but what he was doing here, the other scriptures would have been the Old Testament scriptures which would have been established from Genesis to Malachi at that particular point. Those are the only scriptures they had. These letters that we have, these were just being written at that time, and certainly he included Paul's writings along with the Old Testament scriptures. I say that in passing, but that's a very important point to actually make. But we shouldn't get lost in the point that Peter is making. Peter's not trying to jab Paul. He just said that in passing. The point that Peter is making is we should not get lost in all of these details about the timing of the Lord's return and the length of time that has, that has transpired, he says instead we need to be focused on souls. We need to be focused on seeing that this is an opportunity for salvation. That every day that the Lord delays his return is an opportunity for us to share the gospel and for men, women, boys and girls to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There should not be any greater priority than this priority of sharing the gospel. And clearly, we should avoid any kind of speculation about the date 
of the Lord's return, as some people are prone to give themselves to. But, but Peter also is telling us not only are we to be patient and how we need to relate to the Lord's delay, he's also saying that we need to be diligent. Our lives are to be marked by spiritual diligence as we, re- as we await the Lord's return. And what he says is that we are to be diligent so as to ensure that we are without spot or blemish. Now again, Peter is not talking about the, the view of us that God has. The view of us that God has, all of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, he sees us without spot, without blemish, because he sees us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been a gift that he has given to us. But what he's talking about here is practical dealing with sin in our lives. And notice how he, he addresses it. He says to us that we are to be diligent, that we will not be found with spot or blemish. A spot or a blemish. And you know, they, they do this with fruit, um, when they're grading fruit, putting them in A grade and B grade and whatever other grades they have, they inspect them. And if there's just a spot or blemish that shouldn't be on it, they put it to the side. Because they're looking for what appears to be a perfect-looking fruit or a vegetable. What Peter is saying to us, he's saying to us, this world is passing away. The new heavens and the new earth are uh, being ushered in. He says, you need to be diligent with sin in your life, and you need to be addressing even the smallest sin, the spot, the blemish. And see, when you think about that, that has far-reaching implications because if he's saying to us that we need to be diligent with the small sins, what about the big sins? It is a given that if he calls us to be diligent about the small things, that we must not even have a thought about having the big sins in our lives. And I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, sin is sin. Not true. People say that all the time. Sin is not sin. We see this from the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, the Lord classified sins. There were some sins that you could be stoned for. There were other sins you had to bring a sacrifice for. And the sacrifice was determined based on the sin. There were some sacrifices that required, there were some sins that required a huge sacrifice. Bulls, many bulls and goats. And then there were other sins that just would require a a, a dove or a, a, a lamb. And we see this distinction between sins. And our own law reflects this difference in, in recognizing wrongs and and, and sins, which we got it from the Old Testament. We got it from the law of Moses. And so there are some sins that can land us in prison. There are other sins that won't land us in prison. And there are some sins that would bring us before the courts, and the courts deal with those sins differently. So, for example, you go before the courts for stealing, they don't give you the death penalty, or they don't send you to jail for life. And so we should never say that sin is sin. As a matter of fact, one of the best examples of it 
is when Jesus stood before Pilate and um, he said to Pilate, the one who betrayed me to you has committed the greater sin. And so don't let anyone sell you the lie that sin is sin. Sin is not sin. And there are some sins that are far more serious than others. But the Apostle Peter's point is this. We who believe that this world is coming to an end, we who believe that there's a new heaven and a new earth that is being ushered in, we must be diligent with our lives. We must be diligent with the spots. We must be diligent with the blemishes. We must take sin seriously, is what he's really saying to us. We don't pass them over because they're small and say, I'll only deal with the big sins. No, he says, you deal with those small sins. And, and one of the reasons for that is that it's the little, little foxes that spoil the vine. And little sins lead to big sins. If we begin to allow our consciences to be seared and our consciences to be numbed, where we're not convicted by small sins, eventually we will be unconvicted by even bigger sins. And so Peter says to us, we need to be diligent. We need to be diligent with even the small spots and the blemishes. We're not to be indulging in sin. Instead, we are to be mortifying sin. As I thought about this for us, um, in our understanding of salvation, that our salvation is about Christ from start to finish, and the one who starts it is the one who will complete it, and that we will make heaven not because of what we have done or do, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done and continues to do to preserve us to the end. Those of us who hold that view, we need to be aware that there's also a temptation and a danger that could come our way where we could take the view that, oh, well, since ultimately it depends on Christ, I don't need to be as careful. I don't need to be as diligent. Peter says no. Peter was more persuaded and convinced that it is Christ who will cause us to finish the race of salvation, yet he calls us to be diligent in dealing with sin in our lives, the smallest sin, the smallest spot, the smallest blemish. Brothers and sisters, a growing love for God is evidenced by a growing hatred for sin and a growing love for righteousness. And truly, the Bible teaches us these are evidences of genuine conversion. These are evidences of genuine conversion, that we are loving God more, that we are hating sin more. We are loving sin less. And, and one of the most encouraging experiences a Christian can have is to be faced with temptations to sin in ways they used to sin and find a desire in their heart that they no, want, no longer want to go that way. 
even if it presents as a temptation and it's a tug at your heart, that you're to the place where you could recognize, you know what, there was a time when I didn't even fight this. I just yielded to it. That is an evidence of the grace of God. And Peter says this needs to be happening in our lives in an ongoing way. We need to be diligent. Brothers and sisters, we are no match for sin. We can't play sin closely. It'll eat our lunch every single time. And so we need to take heed to what the Word says. We need to be diligent that we would be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace, meaning that our consciences are at peace with God. We don't get a peaceful conscience with God because we are perfect in and of ourselves. We don't. But we get a peaceful conscience with God when we know we are walking in the light, we are renouncing sin, we are mortifying sin, our conscience grows in a more peaceful way with God. Puritan pastor John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the whole point is that we need to be actively seeking to mortify sin in our lives. Otherwise, sin is eroding and just chipping away in our lives. What this calls for is it calls for spiritual diligence. It calls us to be spiritually diligent. So Peter tells us, in light of Christ's return, in light of the coming destruction of this world, we who belong to Christ are to live lives marked by holiness and godliness and We are to live lives marked by patience and diligence. And third and finally, he tells us that we are to live lives that are marked by stability and growth. Notice how he says that in verse 17. He writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In verse 18 he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In contrast to those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction, we are called not to be carried away with the error of lawless men and run the risk of losing our own stability. And again, the issue here for those who were twisting the scriptures in this way is that they were a law unto themselves. No one could tell them anything. They felt they understood the scriptures just as well as Peter, just as well as Paul, and no one needed to tell them anything. And so they were self-destructing by taking that approach. The clear point that Peter is making is that stability comes from doing the opposite. Stability comes, spiritual stability comes, through rightly relating to God, through His Word, through prayer, through His body, 
and godly pastors are a part of God's provision for stability. The Lord doesn't call his people sheep for any reason. It is an indication of neediness. It is an indication of a need for a shepherd. You don't need shepherds for lions and for other kinds of beasts of prey that could make their own way. They don't need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds. And as each day goes by, we need to be seeking to increase and grow in our spiritual stability. And the point is that we need to take care to ensure that this happens. But not only are we to be stable, we are to also be growing. Our lives are to be marked by growth. He says we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible likens us when we come to Christ as babes. We are to, Scripture says, we are to desire the sincere milk of the word so that we may grow. But we are not to stay that way. We are to grow over time. We are to mature over time. And so what he is addressing here is our salvation experience. And you'd remember, those of you who were here for the first sermon in this series, Peter has come full circle. He has come right back to where he started. Turn to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, where Peter is opening the letter, and he is he's addressing his audience, people who were being bombarded by false teachers, who were telling them that their faith was not a sufficient faith. They needed other things, and, and it just wasn't enough. Peter says to them in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great, very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You have to add to it. He says you must add to it virtue. And then with virtue, you to, you to add knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. He says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter ends where he started. And he is urging us to grow. He is urging us to grow in our, in our salvation. He is urging us to grow in the grace 
and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, we must not hear this as a command to us away from the help of the Spirit. We need God's help through His Holy Spirit. We would even have no desire to do this except the Spirit helps us. So the Spirit needs to both give us the desire and the Spirit needs to also enable us to do these things. Peter closes his letter with a doxology to Christ. And he says to him, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And I'll close just with these few words. People often talk about, oh, you know, I don't know this thing. I don't know about Jesus and God being equal. We sang this morning about the Godhead, the the three in one. We sang about the Blessed Trinity this morning. And they will say things like, well, find me a scripture that says that, that teaches that. And see, we don't have a scripture that, that teaches us in exact way what we talk about, our understanding of the Godhead. God has revealed himself in his word. And it is as we read God's word, we see how God has revealed himself. And so one of the things we know that scripture teaches is that God, glory belongs to God alone, and he shares it with no one. And so here's what we know. Anyone to whom glory is given is therefore God. And what we teach about the, the Godhead, about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is we say all that Scripture says. Scripture says God is one. So we say, yes, God is one. He is God alone. Scripture says that. We say that as well. But what we also see Scripture saying is that we see Scripture ascribing the same divine qualities of God to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this case, to the Son. And Peter is not referring to God the Father here. He's referring to God the Son here because in verse 18 it says, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Of God the Father, which is what we see in the Old Testament, He says, I won't share my glory with another. And yet we see in the Holy Scripture, glory is being ascribed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is not God the Father, he is God the Son. But the same glory that is given to God the Father is given to God the Son. And therefore we are able to speak in terms of God the Father and the Son in this particular case to say they are co-equal and they share in the same divine glory. Though distinct persons. And yet we accept that God is also one. And we see this in Scripture, and so we have to say both. We can't choose one or the other. We say both. God is one. God is three. God the Father is God, and God the Son is God. And we don't see this in perfect understanding. We don't know this 
uh, perfectly. When you talk about God, comprehending God is an impossibility for finite creatures. Because what we are seeking to do when we study God as he has revealed himself in scriptures, we finite beings are trying to understand an infinite being, and we can't. The day we can fully understand God is the day we'll be God. We can say, well, you know, God, back over. Let me be God now. I understand you. We don't. God has sufficiently revealed himself in Scripture that we may, we may know him. We don't know him perfectly, but we know him sufficiently. And we know him because he has revealed himself to us in his word. And so Peter concludes this letter with this doxology to God the Son. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. What's the day of eternity? The day of eternity is the day that Jesus returns and that day will usher in eternity. We now live in time when Christ's return, when he returns, eternity will be ushered in. And Peter says, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us take time. I would, I would even encourage you today to fit into your afternoon contemplating these words of Second Peter, these concluding words. What kind of people are we ought to be? What kind of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, lives marked with diligence and patience, lives marked with stability and growth. If we truly believe that this world as we know it is passing away and we believe that God is going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray.